0: Hey everyone, Steve here. Before we get started, I wanted to share a bit of great news. Uh, Eternal Leadership has been live for four and a half months, and we've been watching our download numbers increase nearly every month. In fact, in March, we saw a 41% increase in downloads. Since we're no longer on iTunes, new and noteworthy, this growth has been 100% organic... In large part, that's because of you, so thank you. John and I have big dreams for this show, and we want to be on more than twice each week, but our time is really strapped with our current schedule, so we're asking you, if you like what we're doing and you want to hear more episodes, we're asking you for three things. Prayer, share, and feedback. Especially pray for us. Pray that our steps are guided, that we focus our energies in all the right areas, that we have wisdom in starting to monetize this show. You know, a number of people around us lately have been saying we're doing awesome things and that we're on the verge of some real breakthrough. Neither John nor I take those words and encouragement like that lightly, so we want to enlist your help in helping us pray for guidance. Thanks for being a part of what we're doing.
1: A lot of the Fortune 100 leaders I've, I've coached and worked with have hard times with what other people might think is a fabulous life, and it's because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And when we have a purpose, when we have a bigger reason for being, we can endure, we can overcome challenges that other people who may not have that understanding, that belief would crumble under.
0: Welcome to Returnal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, former Nike Vice President, former Reebok President, and former Aveda CEO, Marilyn Tam. Marilyn has a moving story of incredible business and humanitarian success while overcoming abuse and neglect as a child in Hong Kong. My co-host John Ramson and I recently interviewed Marilyn for this edition of Eternal Leadership.
2: Well, Steve, today on Eternal yeah. Leadership, we have Marilyn Tam. If you look at Marilyn's resume, you know, as CEO of Aveda, president of Reebok, uh, vice president at Nike and you look at her executive career. uh, Impressive. Incredibly impressive and and you look at this amazing woman as somebody who's just risen to the pinnacle uh, of success but what where she came from and what she's doing with her life sets her apart in just such a meaningful way and I I couldn't be more excited to have Marilyn on the show today so Marilyn Mm -hmm. welcome.
1: Thank you it's my pleasure to be here with you both.
2: Well, uh, it's our pleasure, and I know once the audience hears from you, they're going to be just incredibly blessed. So before we start, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and where you came from, because that's a big part of your story uh, as we kind of walk through your journey. So let me just turn that over to you, Marilyn.
1: Thank you. Um, my my journey is a, a complicated one, and I'm sure if every one of us think about our own journeys. It can be complicated and challenging, but it's really what we do with it that makes a difference in our lives. I was born in Hong Kong. I was a second daughter in a very traditional Chinese family. And then my birth was followed quickly by the birth of three younger brothers. And if you know anything about Chinese family, this is what we would in marketing call very poor positioning.
2: (laughs) 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 Wait, wait, what a great way to cut right to the, the heart of the issue there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and um, to say that my mother was very disappointed in my birth would be an understatement. She actually left me at the hospital, and they had to be called to pick me up because she was very disappointed to get a second girl. And so from a very young age, as far as far back as I can remember, I was made to feel less than, and, and as she would say frequently, worth less than dirt. So it was not exactly what one would call a, a positive upbringing, um, and to escape from the abuse, <clears throat> I would try to hide um, in trees and in the woods so that I wouldn't get uh, the physical, of course, beatings, but more the, the mental abuse. And in the in that place, out in nature, I found something even more important. I found spirit. And so, as a little girl, at three years old or so. Before I even knew the words, I knew there was a power bigger than all these people around me who were telling me that I'm worthless. That was there telling me that I was here for a reason. And that's mm-hmm. honestly, that's what kept me going. So when you were
2: very young, four, five, six, seven, was, was that sense of, this, of, of God, the Spirit, grounding you this whole time? Or I'm sure it was still very challenging.
1: Oh, it's very challenging because, you know, I'm still a kid and and, and nobody, especially kid, wants to be told that they're worthless or, you know, to be, you know, physically beat. So both of those things are not not um, one what one would uh, welcome. But I felt something different. I felt a bigger, bigger power. I felt a connection that I couldn't really explain because I never had the words and nobody explained it to me. But there was something there tangible in in an a intangible way, obviously, because I couldn't, you know, see it um, as a like a r- r- regular person, but I could feel it and I could have the sense that there was something bigger that was keeping me safe, even though it didn't look like I was safe. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at age seven, after the birth of, you know, my my brothers, uh, my parents um, gave me away. They gave me to my aunt and uncle because they didn't have any children. And then they just, just hoping, were hoping that they would take me on and adopt me. So, um, and I have to say that my parents were not poor. It's just that they didn't want another girl. So I went to live with my aunt and uncle and that level of rejection of, of feeling that I was just not worth it you know, even to have around was really deeply painful. And then I had to go back again to hanging on to something bigger to keep me going. I also did have, I have to give credit to another source and that was my grandfather. My grandfather gave me my Chinese name, which uh, actually is Hei Li, which is a name very seldom given out. And when it is, it's given usually to the firstborn son of a very prominent family. Mm. So I have no idea why my grandfather gave me that name because he died when I was seven. Mm. But that name gave me an understanding or belief, I should say a belief more than understanding, um, that somebody believed in me. And, that, and I share this because I want other people listening to know that we all, each one of us, have at times somebody that believed in us. And so when we're feeling especially down or depressed or discouraged or scared, we can go back to that place and and hang on to those that anchor that we are here for a reason and somebody believes in us. And along with spirit, that can be very helpful when times get tough. And they all get tough sometimes for everybody. Now,
0: Marilyn, when you moved in
1: with your aunt and uncle, was that, gaping hole
0: of love and affection filled by your aunt and uncle.
1: It was definitely much better because I wasn't, first of all, I was not physically beat and nobody told me that I was worthless. (laughs) So (laughs) major improvements. Um, And I lived there. I had a lot of work to do. Um, I learned what now we call child labor when I was with them. I um, assembled plastic flowers and I embroidered the background to uh, uh, these uh, embroidery needlepoint handbags that get sold around the world. Uh, so I, I I learned other things. But then at, at 11, my aunt gave birth to her first child and I was a boy. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what happened next. <laughs> I was given back to my parents. So they um, decided that they didn't need another child because they have their own.
2: So how did you go from that situation where you, you weren't wanted by the family and be able to come over to the U
1: S. And this is why I think I, I like to share this because it just, it teaches, it taught me, and I hope it can inspire others to understand that no matter how bad our circumstance, we can help somebody else because at age 11, I was uh, sent to a private school because as I mentioned, my pa- my family was, is not, you know, was not poor. And there was a scholarship student. I didn't know that because nobody looked any different because we all wore little uniforms, being a parochial school. Um, and my r- classmate, Rebecca, um, I went to visit her. And there was a lot of effort to get to that point when she would allow me to go visit her. And I found out that she and her whole family lived in a room and they shared a kitchen and a bathroom with two more families. And by the the later part of the month, they didn't have enough food to eat. And they shared two stools that the three kids, because there's five of them, father, mother, and, and three children, shared to do the homework on the bunk bed that they all shared. I was completely filled with outrage. I couldn't understand why two parents working full time could not afford to feed the children and give them uh, some reasonable quality of life. And, and I, I just changed from feeling somewhat sorry for myself and, 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 and looking for ways to, to, to make my life better to thinking I can help other people make their lives better because their lives were so much worse than mine. And so Rebecca, I give her honor to this day, gave me the inspiration that drove me to make a shift to say, how can I help others? How can I right the wrongs I saw, even as a girl of 11 years old? And, um, and this is the other part of the story. I, And I share this because I I think this is something we all can look at, and that is our reference point. Because sometimes it's very easy to to be lulled into the perspective that whatever the media that we are absorbing at the moment, whether it's TV or newspaper or the Internet, that becomes our world. And Mm -hmm. we forget that. And as a little girl, TV wasn't that great. I mean, it was barely color. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long time ago when it grew up. And so my reference point, and this is what I'm talking about, our reference point. My reference point became National Geographic. I used to love to read those magazines. And in those magazines, I took that mission of mine to make a difference in the world and made it concrete. Because we can all have a life purpose, but until we make it into an actionable point, we just in the dreamland. And for me, I looked at those pictures in National Geographic, and I saw a lot of people that were suffering and doing, you know, having a very minimal life, basic survival. And most of those people in those magazines were from Africa. And so I said to myself, I can help those people. <laughs> and so that motivated me. I decided that I was going to grow up, learn how to teach them to feed themselves and to run their country.
2: <laughs> you, are, you are a very ambitious 11-year-old.
1: <laughs> well, be, think of it this way. I have been told all my life I was worthless. Mm-hmm. And so what is the converse? If I'm so worthless, I can't really be that worthless. That my, that's, I just reversed it and I said, I can do anything. If I can do nothing, I can do anything. So I just took the message I was given, I flipped it. And I said, I surely can do more than nothing. So why can't I do anything that I want? So I took that message and I held onto that, did school. I didn't finish high school. I came to the United States by myself, halfway through high school, my two suitcases, my teddy bear, um, getting, getting early acceptance into college, working two, full-time as a fry cook and then a dietary aide. riding my bike to work because I was too young and too poor to have a car. Um, to work into school. And that's how I started my life.
2: So how old were you when you came over
1: here, Marilyn? I was in my mid-teens. Yeah.
2: So you're in your mid-teens and you apply to college early and you're working two full-time jobs.
1: Uh, It was, uh, it was not easy because even with that, I didn't have much money. Um, And going, landing from Hong Kong into Oregon with the weather difference, you know, it, it was now I think it's beautiful. But the time, it was freezing cold and rainy and <laughs> wet, and I didn't have the right clothes or shoes. And and so within the first week, I ruined my my shoes, and I didn't have money to buy any more. So I um I still remember, and it could have been very dis- disastrous because that is, needless to say, quite quite depressing for a little kid who knew nobody and nothing and had no money and, and was trying to make my way. But I still remember my life purpose. I was here to make a difference, and I also remember my grandfather must have felt that he he felt that I was going to be worth something. So those things kept me going, and so I found in, uh, in, in, uh, their sh- in the in in those days they were sold everywhere. They're, you may not even know them, doctor shoes. Those wooden wooden bottom shoes with a strap across. Yep. I bought a pair of those. And they were I think twelve ninety nine. I still remember. And um, those, because it was open toe, the rain could run right through them, and the wood bottom never got ruined in the rain. I wore those my whole college, clopping down all the halls. But so that I'm just sharing that to have uh, our listeners know when we have a purpose, we can almost endure anything. When we have the faith in something greater, uh, what we have to go through. It's bearable because we are here for a reason.
2: You know, when you were there in college and the rain is running through your shoes, and you're working two full-time jobs, there must have been times where it was really hard to stay focused on, you know, that reference point that you had, you know, your your grandpa naming you Haley, mm-hmm. that identity he gave you, you know, with this vision to move forward, but just also maybe a despair from just the situation you were in. Uh, how did you handle that? Because I'm sure there there's many decision points or moments that you had where you just had to intentionally focus on a direction that people struggle with.
1: Oh, and you're right. I did have many of those points. Um, just listening enough because one first one was when I, I was working so hard and going to school and doing everything that I got really sick. And I landed up in the infirmary in the, in the university. And I just said, I, I, I've got to leave because I've got work to do and I've got to go to school and all this stuff. And the, the, the doctor said, well, if you leave, you have to sign this paper to say that we're not responsible for you die. And then it just occurred to me at that moment that I've got to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment being young and everything i just thought life i was invincible so then that that moment i just decided okay i i just had to ask for help from a bigger source because I, I couldn't do this so I, I i just this is when we get crumbled to our knees and then we just have to say lord help me because i don't know how i'm going to get out of this hole and so I cut back on a lot of because aside from working in the job and going to school, I was also volunteering and, and working um, in the club for foreign students because I was a foreign student. And so I had to drop out of all social activities and just say, OK, what can I do? And I cut back even on work because I knew that most importantly, I'd go to school. And if I had to cut back some other way, I would just have to figure out how I'm going to make everything fit but I, I never lost f- focus of where I need to go. But I have to admit, you're right. There were times when I just felt like I have to surrender because I can't do this by myself. I just, you know, this is when we get on our knees and just say, God, help me because I don't know how to do this. And then the, the the answer comes. It may not be the way we want, but the answer comes. And so in those times, yeah, it, it just when I look outside, it's raining again, you know, it rains for about five, six months <laughs> and it's cold and I'm tired of being wet and smelling like French fries. And I just go, is this my life? You know? And then you have to say, okay, I can make it. I can make it. And then just pick up myself back up again and then do it another day. And something great would happen. Maybe somebody gives me um, appreciation for what I've done for them. You know, whether it's just, you know, making a great hamburger, you know, which is I was a fry cook mm-hmm. uh, or, or cleaning the, the grill or whatever it is. It's just all of a sudden feeling, OK, I am not invisible and, and I am making a difference. So whatever it is to, to find that small acknowledgement someplace that that, yes, life life is it's it's good now, I'm not waiting for it later. It is good now, even though it may look really bleak if I chose to look in another way. Or maybe it just stopped raining and I just go, Thank goodness it's not raining. <laughs> it's small things that make a difference. And for for me, I just I remember then I go back and I think about Rebecca and how tough she had her life and I just say, Yeah, I can do this.
0: Now, Marilyn, at 11 years old, you made a conscious decision to really reframe your situation, reframe your circumstances. That, to me, is astounding that at 11 years old, you could do that. Undoubtedly, you've seen many adults that have struggled to reframe their circumstances, who have not gone through the kinds of dire abuse and neglect and problems that you went through. Why do you think those adults have such a hard time reframing their circumstances.
1: I think the biggest difference, and and then you're right, many people, including a lot of the Fortune One Hundred leaders I've I've coached and worked with, um have hard times with 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 what other people might think is a fabulous life. And it's because a lot of times in, in most cases it's because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And when we have a purpose, when we have a bigger reason for being we can endure we can overcome we can go through challenges that other people who may not have that understanding that belief would crumble under so it's a it's something that we all have a life purpose and when we find it it makes life completely different
0: how do you coach people to find that life purpose
1: uh, the first thing I tell them is, don't panic, <laughs> because many people, when they f- realize that they don't know, don't, don't know why they're doing what they're doing, because most of the people have taken on um, their life journey based on what they've heard, seen, or been told, or all three, and they never really stop enough to listen to that small still voice inside to say, this is really why you're here, because we were all born for a particular purpose. And when we recognize that life transforms for for the good in so many ways. So instead of feeling panicked that they don't know it, I just say relax into it and just lean into what calls to you. Uh, I'm not asking people to just drop everything and, and you know, shave their heads and, and, and follow a spiritual path. Um, lean into what calls to you. And as you lean into it and, and move towards it, your life purpose will unfold. And take the time to stay quiet for a minute. Turn off all your devices. Turn off all electronics and, and go to a place where you can have a chance to be quiet Whether it's a place of of, of, uh, worship or whether it's nature or some place where you can have a little quiet and listen to your heart and says, what is it that you really want? And then in that place and start journaling and asking that question and it'll come to you.
2: You know, Marilyn, you're talking about a place of really peace and joy that comes from that finding that purpose. Mm -hmm. What have you found on how those two are linked in your life and how you've helped others?
1: When we have our life purpose, all the voices in our head that otherwise are, are floating around, which says you ought to, you should have, you could have, you know, you shouldn't have, all those voices slow down, and that gives us inner peace because yeah. now we know at a deep level we are aligned with why we're here. And then the peace becomes natural. And not only that, we are much happier too. Well, you know,
2: you're doing a lot of work with the US Foundation currently. But you know, if you rewind, you look at your career after college. What was it? What was your life purpose and the direction that you were moving, in that brought you to the, you know, the top of the executive, uh, you know, some of the accomplishments that you made in in business.
1: That's really a connected question. I never forgot about my childhood how my my goal was to make a positive difference. And even though I could not go to Africa, because when I got done with school, well, actually right before I was done with school, I applied to WHO, World Health Organization, to work in Africa, just like I thought I would do. And then I discovered that they required 10 years experience before they would hire anybody. And of course, I wasn't even 21. <laughs> I didn't have 10 years experience. <laughs> um, and so that really set me back thinking that my whole life was for naught. I just spent uh, my whole career working towards this goal and I wasn't going to achieve it. And I made, that made me step back and say to, to myself, you know, what do you still have and, and why are you here? And in that place, I understood through some quiet time that I don't have to look for this big grandiose way of making a difference. I can make a difference wherever I am, whatever I'm doing so i went actually to the college counseling center looked down the list of of companies and there was one there called may department stores which is part of macy's now and i said well i don't know anything about retail i'll apply there just to practice interviewing because i I was so focused on on doing what i was going to do that i really did have a thought about that i would need to get another kind of job (laughs) um and i interviewed with them and it was a complete eye opener for me because I found that that number one, they really were interested in performance. They rated and and graded and promoted people based on how well they did. And you have to remember who uh, I was and and still am. I was a small immigrant, young uh, woman of color, um, so I've been discriminated against about in any any kind of aspect you can you can imagine. So to have somebody tell me, a company tell me that they were going to rate and promote me and, and let me advance based on what I could do. That was such a wonderful concept. So I looked into the company and found that they actually walked the talk, they were helping to um, helping the community they're working in. They were as I mentioned, promoting people based on who they really are. And they did a lot of work and, and the mission was really harmonious with what I believed in. And I said, you know, maybe I need to start making a difference right here, right now, instead of waiting 10 years before I had enough experience to qualify to work for WHO. And so I jumped into the company still with my, my life purpose intact, doing what I can in the business world and at the same time doing what I can in making a difference in a humanitarian way, in a spiritual way. So the two was completely intertwined. And as I grew in work and in promotions and uh, different companies, I took the same idea and and always asked myself, how can I make a difference where I am? So some of the examples, when I was president of Reebok Apparel Products and Retail Group, we helped establish labor standards for apparel workers around the world because I remember what it's like to be a child laborer and I don't want that to happen to other people. So that's an example. Or when I see a vader working with indigenous people in South America along the Amazon to help them regrow um, their indigenous plants so, so that they have a life that is more harmonious with what they believe because their land has been taken over and rubber rubber trees were put in for, for us uh, to have, you know, rubber for tires and that type of thing. And then when that became not uh, as useful anymore because we found cheaper synthetics, more re- of the rainforest got cut down to grow cows. And again, they got displaced. So what we did with the Vedos, we went and helped them grow back the indigenous plants because the indigenous plants they use for um, coloring for, for their bodies. And which is what we do, too. I mean, we use it for cosmetics, uh, uh, lipstick, and all the different things. So it was a win-win for every case. So I just use my work as another platform for me to give back. So it's not, okay, I'm going to work and make money for this long, and then I'm going to do good. It was, how can I do good now where I am? And I think everybody can look and, and find a way for them to do that for themselves, too.
2: Well, that's so interesting. When you were at Aveda, Maryland, was that like what you were doing in the rainforest regions? Was that an initiative that Aveda already had in? Or did that flow from your values and your purpose and you brought that into the culture and into the company?
1: Horse Ruckerbucker, who was the founder of Aveda, Mm -hmm. Also, um, I met him actually through humanitarian work. So I've known him for some years before I joined the company. When I was Reebok, um, we did work on human rights around the world because Reebok was very big on that. I was part of the the group that helped found some of that work. And so um, I met Horst Ruckerbacker through that work. And as I was um, transitioning out of there, because I I decided that I, I really... My job was done in Reebok and I wanted to move back to the West Coast. Horse asked me to run his company for him because he wanted to retire and then have an opportunity to uh, sell it so that he can um, transition out and then have his next phase, phase of life after 30 something years of, of running this company. So, He already had the the vision of helping and working in different parts of the world. And so it was collaboration. I have to give him as much credit as as anybody because he really – he passed a year ago, February. Um, He had as much vision and passion for making a positive difference as anybody I've met. So it was a wonderful partnership.
2: You know, as you go through – life and you and you meet people, they're either CEOs of large companies or they're, they're working their way up the way you did. How do you, you know, that shift that you had from wanting to change the world and go work in Africa, this huge vision to now this realization that, you know what, I can make a huge difference just where I am with my life. That seems to me like that was a pretty significant shift in thinking for you.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And then how do do you bring that awareness to that to people who are around you and when you you teach and you speak today?
1: Thank you. That's really a very key thing because many people, especially people who are climbing in the corporate ladder in different places or they have their own business, and then they think, well, I'm going to give back when I get to fill in a a particular milestone. It could be a certain amount of money or a certain size of company or whatever – and that can get delayed as we keep going up. And for me, that realization was when I just got slammed against the wall when I realized that my whole vision of what I was going to do, which is work for WHO, was not going to happen, and I had to wait 10 years, and I had to reframe. And, and I just ask people that I, I, when I give keynotes around the world or when I coach uh, senior leaders in, in major companies, I, I just ask them to reframe what they're doing, you know that we don't have to wait to do good, we can do good now, and, and that that comes from recognizing that each moment that we breathe we, we're we making a choice we're either doing more good to for the world or, or we're we're just, you know coasting on the ride and and for us to realize that 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 we can't go through most of our life and then expect us to just stop at some moment and start giving back because we may never get there because who's to say that we are going to live to whatever years that we expect to live we could leave the planet any moment and so let's not go down with regrets because the um I've done, as, as you know, much research, especially for my book, The Happiness Choice, um, on people and, and what people regret most. And, and the five top regrets in a person's life when they get to the deathbed is all about, I wish I could have done. So if anybody has any idea of wanting to give back, they better start now because we may not have that time. So it's shifting the thinking to not one day, but today.
2: You know, there's two things I'm pulling out of what you just shared that I think are very meaningful. The first one, you know, you were talked about listening to that small, still voice and and listening to what God is putting on your heart, the calling that he has for your life and that purpose. And as you spend that time and you connect with that, ask yourself, what good can I, I be doing with my life today, right now, right here? Not in the future, but in the present, in this moment, And that seems to be what you've kind of has defined your life and has led to just some pretty incredible results.
1: And we can all do that. It's not it doesn't have to be momentous, because I think some of us, (laughs) including myself when I was a kid, um, I think that we think that we're going to do something really gigantic. And yet it could be as simple as holding the door for somebody or or saying good morning or, or or helping somebody do something that they needed help with or just giving them some wisdom, whatever it is, from the smallest act, each moment we're making a choice.
0: Marilyn, I, I love in your pre-interview questionnaire, we asked you what your favorite scripture was. And, and, and I think your entire life really culminates with the scripture that you gave, which was Romans 12, 19, dear friends, never take revenge Leave that to God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. I think it's incredible that you have had all of these bad situations dumped on you from a very early age, an age where it's so foundational to the rest of our life, but instead you have, you've forgiven, and you haven't retaliated.
1: And that truly. Really- that is a freeing thing for me. I, 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 the old saying is that you know when you, when you are angry or, or, or vengeful against somebody else, it's like you taking poison and hoping that they will die. <laughs> and I, I choose not to take poison because it just makes me sick, not the other person. And I found that out early because of just if I don't, I would just be so filled with rage and, and anger. I would not uh, be able to function. So, and I always go back and say, well, I try to understand why people do what they do. And then, so I just have to say, "Wow, it must be so painful to live in that person's body because they must have so many judgments and they must have so many conditioning that uh, that creates this kind of um, attitude. So I, I was grateful that I had enough blessings if you will to to think that way instead of just saying okay i'm I'm gonna find a way to to pay back these people because it doesn't serve
0: have you had reconciliation with your parents
1: um my father died many years ago in a a plane crash Mm -hmm. and i believe that he got to see me achieve quite a bit in in the world and um he never told me that he was proud of me, but he, he has to, you know, he did tell other people that I late, later heard. With my mm-hmm. mother, it was a, a difficult, um, the last four years of her life, she had a stroke at four and a half years and she was completely, um, immobilized. She was on a feeding tube and she couldn't speak or move. So I had a lot of time with her. I would go visit her and I would just sit by her bed and I I'll I'll just sing to her and I'll tell her stories and I'll I'll ask for her forgiveness and I told her her i give her forgiveness because it was just two ways, you know, because I felt very sorry for her and empathy for her because here's a woman who would would do that to her own child, her own flesh and blood. There must be something very deep in her that was not balanced that she would act that way. So for me, it was a, it was a beautiful time because once she was able to move and mobile, I never had an opportunity to really speak to her like that because she wouldn't listen, or, or she would just actually leave the room, or, or just tell me to go away. But um, I had four and a half years of opportunity to really share with her, and I believe she heard me. I really believe she heard me.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow, what a powerful perspective, Marilyn. You know, as we wrap up here and people are listening, what's what's one thought you would like to really leave with people?
1: I would tell them that you are good enough now and that you have more skills, you have more blessings, and you have more inner strength to fulfill whatever it is you're here to do than you know. So just go ahead and, and take the first step towards your dreams because they are there waiting for you. And, and we are here to support you along the way.
0: And we are here at Eternal Leadership to support you. If you want to learn more about Marilyn, get one of her books, such as The Happiness Choice, How to Use What You've Got to Get What You Want, or Living the Life of Your Dreams. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash 034. And there we'll have links to her website, those books, her blog, videos on her website, her weekly radio show called The Happiness Choice, all that and more. eternalleadership.com slash Or if you're listening on a smartphone, tablet, or computer, we have that link embedded in the description of this MP3 for a simple click that'll take you directly to those show notes. Special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his audio and production help with this episode. Next time on Eternal Leadership, John is joined in the Coach's Corner by Executive Coach Russell Verhey.
2: As a leader becomes more secure, that lends itself to a humility. It lends itself to a transparency and authenticity that opens up relationships, And it absolutely one of the fastest ways in that loneliness, because you're building relationships that are truly sincere.
0: John and Russell talk about overcoming loneliness and leadership and how to climb out of feeling stuck and in a plateau. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.